The technology in Mumford's body began to be developed in the 1970s. The lead inventor, P. Hunter Peckham, a biomedical engineer at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, wanted to see whether electrical stimulation would reverse atrophy and ultimately restore function to paralyzed muscles. First in animals and then in people, Peckham and colleagues used hypodermic needles to inject tiny coils of wire into muscles near nerves. They could then send mild pulses of electricity through these wires and stimulate the muscles, changing their very structure. Over time, by putting the wires in the right places and precisely tuning the bursts of electricity, the researchers could coordinate the muscles' movements, recreating, among other things, the normal grasp of a hand. Eventually, the scientists figured out how to implant the technology into patients and let them operate it themselves, outside the lab, by means of a joystick-like control unit mounted to the shoulder. The first version of what would become the freehand system was installed in a patient in 1986. Peckham and five other investors founded NeuroControl seven years later with technologies licensed from Case Western. When the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the freehand in 1997, it was a milestone. It was not the first commercial bionic device, pacemakers and cochlear implants already existed, but it was the first that helped paralyzed patients regain some use of the hands. In fact, it was the first one that used electrical stimulation to make joints move, and to this day it remains the only one ever released. Independent research showed that even at a cost of around $60,000 for the device and the necessary surgery, the freehand saved money in the long run by reducing a patient's need for attendant care. But while the technology was impressive, the freehand got stuck in a small niche. Although there are 250,000 people with spinal cord injuries in the United States alone, the freehand worked only for people whose paralysis stemmed from an injury to a certain area, between the fifth and sixth vertebrae of their cervical spine. That's because a break in that location left them with enough shoulder and elbow mobility to trigger the freehand's grasp and release function. Although NeuroControl estimated its potential market at more than 50,000 people in the United States, not all of them were willing or healthy enough to endure the major operation that was required to implant the device and all those wires. Most important, the potential market was further narrowed by the fact that some private insurers and Medicare, the U.S. government insurance program for the elderly and the disabled, would not always cover the full cost. Rehabilitation clinics and hospitals were already likely to be conservative about recommending a novel implantable system to patients, but given that they might absorb any uncovered costs from the procedure, many medical centers were more reluctant to advocate the technology than NeuroControl had hoped. Lacking momentum, NeuroControl stopped selling the product. The investors had expected that it would penetrate a much larger volume of the overall spinal injury population, says Jeff Thrope, who was NeuroControl's Director of Business Development. We were able to make dozens of implant sales per year. You need to be in the hundreds, if not thousands, to have it make sense. But the decision still rankles Peckham, who resigned from NeuroControl's board as a result. With some more time, he says, NeuroControl might have seen its way through to a sustainable business. It had 19 patients enrolled in a clinical trial in England. One more would have given it the 20 necessary to allow the British national health care system to move toward covering the cost of the freehand. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs was likely to follow suit, he says. 
The problem was that other board members, primarily venture capitalists who decided they were not seeing the return on the investment they had anticipated, were impatient. It was all legal, Peckham says. Whether it was ethical or not is another question. Well, I guess it depends upon what your ethics are, right? Wires in the Warehouse You don't have to dig into archival footage to see the freehand in action. A few miles from where Mumford lives in the Denver suburbs, I met Scott Abram, an accountant for the U.S. Department of the Interior. Abram broke his neck in 1989 at age 17 when he dived into a shallow river on a high school field trip. He got the freehand a decade later and still uses it for certain tasks. When we had lunch in a restaurant, he ordered a chicken sandwich. By activating the freehand with shrugs of his left shoulder, he was able to manipulate his right hand in ways that helped him bring the sandwich to his mouth and down to the plate. All the while, a pager-like control unit on the left side of his wheelchair was still doing what it has done for 15 years.